Let's pray. Father, thank you again that your grace is greater than our sin. That the glory of the eternal rewards for those who are in Christ is greater than the eternal punishment for those who will refuse you. We thank you that it is by grace because if it was not by your grace, none of us would ever know you. We are sinners. We are deceived. Our hearts are sick, deceitfully sick. We, if left to ourselves, would be like those in Genesis 6, thinking about only evil continually. We would be like those in Romans 3. There's no fear of God before us. Our throats would be open graves. None righteous, no, not one. But we thank You, Lord, that in Christ, He is our righteousness. That in Christ, He is our hope. In Christ, we have that amazing grace. And so, Lord, as now we can open Your Word and consider it, we thank You even more for that grace. And we ask, Lord, that You would impress upon us Your Word, that You might be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to look at a few texts this morning, but turn first to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is one of the, the, in my years of pastoral ministry here, elsewhere, different states, one of the things that I am constantly amazed at with regards to what God does and how He ordains things is how a Sunday school lesson will go right with the sermon that's about to be preached. And I think you'll see by the end of what I'm going to talk about here how how true that can be. There's a subject, and we've talked about it before, but there's a subject that merits our attention today. It's been weighing on me as of late, and even more so yesterday, as hundreds of people walked by our tent at the Buggy Festival. And many people received tracts with the gospel message. Some people came and asked for prayer. Some people came and asked for counsel. And I praise God for that. But, beloved, we ought to be burdened today with the knowledge that the majority of the people who passed by our tent yesterday, the vast majority do not know Jesus. Did we speak with many Christians? Yes, we did. But we also spoke with many who may go through the motions of Christianity. Many who might be in a church today, but those people who the Lord someday might say, depart from me, I never know you. I never knew you. Many are deceived by some version of cultural Christianity. Sometimes that's mixed with a certain set of political beliefs. and There are still others who just don't care. Those who flat out reject the claims of Christianity. Those who flat out reject the Bible. They reject Jesus. They have no concern for the things of God. And we talked to people of all stripes yesterday. And the result is that those people, unless they repent and believe in Christ, if, unless they believe the gospel... They will die for their sins, and they will be judged for their sins forever. 
The subject of eternal punishment merits our attention this morning for two reasons. One, if you even here are still in your sins, if you know about Jesus but you don't know Jesus, you will be punished for eternity until you come to Him in repentance and faith. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to be baptized. It's not enough to have a religious background. It's not enough to know a few Bible verses. It's not enough to know theology. The demons know theology. You must know Christ. And so I implore you this morning to consider whether or not you know Jesus. And secondly, for believers... The subject of eternal punishment should compel us, it should motivate us to be much bolder than we usually are in proclaiming the gospel we believe has saved us. I stood in awe yesterday as 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 year olds had no apprehension whatsoever about handing people tracts. Were they worried about rejection? No, they weren't. Because when they were rejected, they just went and talked to somebody else. They shook the dust off their feet and went to somebody else. Adults tend to go, huh, maybe I shouldn't be so bold next time. So we're in 2 Thessalonians for one. We're only going to focus on a couple verses here, but... I want to read from verse 1 to verse 10, and that's going to get us started today. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you, among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. May that be said of us. Verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed For our testimony to you was believed. First thing I want to say that's not even in my notes is that don't look for approval from the world until Jesus comes back. Don't let your boldness to share the gospel be affected by the rejection of the message now because we are promised right here that afflictions and persecutions will continue until God deals out retribution when Jesus returns. You know, there once was a day when being known as a fire and brimstone preacher wasn't a bad thing. The most popular preachers I remember growing up, the preachers I heard about growing up, this is in the the early 80s, you know, going through the 80s, 
They weren't those with shiny teeth who made you feel like you could achieve your destiny. They weren't those who spoke to multiple people on multiple locations on big screens. No, pastors would get up in churches and they would boldly proclaim that if someone were to continue in their sins and refuse to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, as it's written right here, then it meant they did not know God. And I think today, we tend to want to make excuses for everybody we know who isn't faithful and say, yeah, but they're a Christian. I know they are. Really? People who are those people, and maybe you are this morning, I don't know, they were rebelling against God and if nothing changed, these preachers would say that upon the end of their physical life, they would be judged justly and spend eternity forever in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. Hell. And hearing that kind of message used to be common. Hearing that kind of preaching used to be common. Common. It was unambiguous. The line of demarcation was clear between what was Christian and what was not what the right way to think biblically was and what was not. And even if you sometimes went home from the Sunday service not happy, not feeling great about your life, that was okay. Because it meant you were being convicted of sins by the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing. It meant that God was working on you for your good because Jesus loves and saves sinners. But that was then. This is another time... When your feelings are what count. This is today and that line of demarcation has been scrubbed like a window with a dirty rag. Everything is hazier today than it used to be. Nothing is as clear it seems as it used to be. Fire and brimstone preaching is a relic from another time. One criticism of that type of preaching is that it lacks grace. All preaching should have grace in it, beloved, but I submit to you that to preach with grace means you inevitably have to preach about the seriousness and reality of hell. We've got to understand what will happen to everyone who does not know God and does not obey the gospel because what it does is it magnifies the grace that God has shown everyone whom He has saved. When we think about the reality of what's to come for unbelievers, it ought to create in us an utter sense of humility and thankfulness that, oh my, oh my God, you have shown me grace. My God, my God, you have not forsaken me because you forsook your Son on the cross. And thanks be to God. And it ought to spur us on with love and with that kind of boldness to proclaim the gospel to others that they might be saved. So with that in mind, when we think about the uh, what Paul refers to as, in these verses as the penalty of eternal destruction, we need to understand the reality of hell. The reality of hell. And to understand the reality of hell, there is nowhere better to turn than the very words of Jesus. And you don't have to turn here, but 
The, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached was what? The Sermon on the Mount. Relatively early in His ministry, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 really set the tone for His entire earthly ministry. And, and while we remember most from that sermon things like the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, storing up treasures in heaven, Jesus talks a lot about hell. He says to the one with hateful anger in Matthew 5.22, Whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Beloved, when we talk about how obeying the gospel means hating sin, even having a violent attitude toward our sin, we get that not from the Old Testament only, we get that from Jesus. Matthew 5.29-30 says it's better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus makes it clear that everyone faces one of two different futures. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And that's Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. This is all the Sermon on the Mount. In an age in which many preachers are avoiding preaching about sin and death and damnation in favor of preaching about how to have a more fulfilling life, Jesus was not ashamed to preach hell as a motivator. As a motivator, He used the fear of it to incite in people, you want to avoid this that will be worse than any physical death you could ever face. Later, Jesus was teaching His disciples not to compromise, but to stand firm in following Him. He told them, the world will hate you because of Me. If the world hated Me, they're going to hate you too. Students are not above their teachers. Slaves are not above their masters. What they do to Me, they will do to you. He told them, fear God more than the world. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Matthew 10. So to Jesus, the reality of hell was, and it still is today, a motivator for us not only to obey Him now, but to tell others about Him now. Pain and suffering here on account of Christ is preferable. Rejection here and now on account of Christ is preferable to being rejected by God for eternity. Jesus made it clear those who opposed Him would be in hell. They who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, Matthew 23, 13, would be producing converts twice as much a child of hell as themselves. And by the way, He said those words to religious people. He said those words to the kind of preachers I really don't like. He said those words to the kind of people who sit in pews and chairs all over our country during this very hour, and then they go and live their lives however. So, Jesus most assuredly believed hell was for real. And it was a message religious people needed to hear. So if we understand the reality of hell... 
Who are the inhabitants of hell? I hope we understand this one, but I do want to look at it quickly. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Jesus has returned to earth after the tribulation. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And at His coming, this happens. Look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So, so here the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all those who are still alive at the end of the tribulation who don't believe in Christ, but instead they take the mark of the beast, they, they worship the Antichrist, they're thrown into hell, here, the lake of fire. So there are some inhabitants right there. Satan, meanwhile, is thrown into the abyss for 1,000 years. And that is the 1,000 years, it's clear in, in Revelation 20, it mentions 1,000 years six times. But when that time ends, Satan is freed. And he tries one more time to deceive and defeat, uh, de- deceive people and, and defeat Jesus, but it comes to nothing. And so in Revelation 20, look at verse 11 and following. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it will be, at that time, Satan himself will be cast into hell. We sometimes think of Satan there now. No, he's not. Read Job, read 1 Peter. He is a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. But hell is where he will end up along with everyone whose names are not written in the book of life. That's everyone from all times, all eras, all places that, who are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Old Testament, New Testament. Between the Testaments. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophets, everyone who's not trusted in Christ, everyone who, let's go back to Second Thessalonians 1, they don't know God. Everyone who does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will be the inhabitants of hell. And, and just kind of a, an aside, Scripture seems to teach here that nobody is there yet. Now what do I mean by that? We think of people going to hell now, but notice that death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and then they were thrown into the lake of fire. So as I understand Scripture, when unbelievers die today... They go to Hades, which is torment in and of itself. And those who believe go to 
a place called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. It's called Paradise by Jesus on the cross to the thief. And that seems to be uh, where believers go today. Hades for unbelievers. But, but Hades is going to go to hell. Death and Hades are going to get thrown in hell. And it seems that that will be even worse than the torment unbelievers who are dead face now. If that can be imagined. Which is hard to imagine. So as we think about the inhabitants of hell, that, that leads us to think about the nature of hell. In other words, what is hell like? Well, well first of all, back in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul described it how? A place of destruction. A place of destruction for all of its inhabitants. In Romans, Paul keeps repeating the word wrath with regard to it. The wicked are now under his wrath. They are objects of wrath. They continually store up wrath for the day of wrath. And only through Christ can they be saved from the wrath of God. Otherwise they will be judged by God who is impartial and righteous and will not waver. And that judgment is death, destruction, and separation from Christ. 2 Thessalonians teaches, Hell is where God repays the affliction unbelievers have wrought on His church. Today and for the past 2,000 years, unbelievers have been wreaking havoc on Christ's church. They either do it from the outside or they come in unaware, as, as 2 Peter teaches, as false teachers and false brethren and wreak havoc from the inside. Satan's really hit the church for 2,000 years from all angles. Which is why I have even more faith today than I did many years ago when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He will deal out full retribution, God will, against unbelievers because chiefly they do not know God and they do not obey the gospel. That's what Paul says. And thinking back to Revelation 20, the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So, men will be judged for their unbelief and for all the sins that arise from that unbelief. I, I can't imagine if I was going to be judged forever for all the sins I've committed and still commit. And the unbeliever will be judged for that. And it will be horrific. In 2 Peter 2.17, hell is described as the black darkness. Ominous, ominous description. In Revelation 14.10, it is filled with fire and sulfur, a lake of fire where torment rises forever and ever. And what that does is it implies hell will be punishment for the whole self, the material and the immaterial. Some people ask, will hell be a real fire or will it be spiritual? I say, in some sense, both. And, and we're not meant to fully understand that. But, but the, the physical and the spiritual will be, will be tormented. And, and we don't understand how awful it will be, but the picture painted by the language of Scripture is enough to know we don't want to go there. We don't want to be a part of that. Imagine the worst kind of punishment you can fathom, and it's nothing compared to God pouring out His wrath on you for your sins forever and ever and ever. Which leads us to the fact we need to also understand and not equivocate on the duration of hell. I wish this was not a matter of debate amongst people who claim Christ today, but the duration of hell is something we need to be clear about. 
John Stott was one of the most respected voices in evangelical Christianity in the 20th century, in the last half of the 20th century. I think he died around 2009-2010. He's written some books I would recommend, but when it came to hell, he didn't believe in it. Um, At least not how the Bible teaches it. He held to a view called annihilationism. And what annihilationism is, is... Well, it's what it sounds like. The unbelieving dead are annihilated. They're done away with. They don't exist anymore. Okay? Body, mind, and soul, gone. Now, he didn't provide any scriptural evidence for this. Because he couldn't. It's just hell was such an awful thing to consider for him that he didn't want to go there. But we cannot... Rather, this is talking about hell, or rather, this is talking about your function in your marriage, or your function in the church, or your function in life. You can't allow your emotions and your views and the world's opinions to inform the scriptures. We've got to make God's word the authority in our lives and let it tell us how we need to conform to God's will. But annihilationism is not in the Bible and it's not the only view that doesn't line up. There's another more prevalent view and that's that hell is a place of temporary suffering. Uh, The Roman Catholics have for centuries taught a doctrine of purgatory. I'm not just talking about Roman Catholics here, but they have this doctrine of purgatory that when you die, you go into a state of purgatory where you are uh, temporarily punished for a time and then eventually you'll enter into heaven. But there's this view that hell is a place where God is not meeting out His justice upon you. He's not unloading His wrath upon you. But He is purifying you. And that's a view first espoused by a teacher in the first couple hundred years after Christ named Origen. But, but ultimately what this is, it's, it's a form of universalism. And you know what universalism is? It's the idea that everyone will be saved. So hell d- doesn't become a place of eternal destruction. It's a place where unbelievers are purified and, and the suffering is temporary and all of your impurities are burnt away. Some of the proponents of, of ideas like this have taken a word like eternal in our Bible. It's the Greek word ionios, which we get eons from and they say it does not refer to a duration which is everlasting but to an age to, to, to an, indif- an indefinite length of time and there are a couple places where that's accurate where it does come across that way in the Bible but and this is a big but <laughs> come on now <laughs> the vast majority of times that word is used, it is clearly referring to something that is everlasting. Let me just give you a couple. Romans 16.26 God is called the eternal God. The word Ionios is used there. So Paul surely did not mean that God is God only for an indefinite amount of time. Right? I think we would all agree on that. God is not God for an indefinite amount of time. God is God for all time. Hebrews 9.14, the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit. Luke 16.9, 
Jesus refers to the eternal dwellings of the faithful, the new heaven and new earth. Hebrews 5, 9, Jesus, having been made perfect, became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. That's the same word, Ionios. Through His own blood, Hebrews 9, 12 says we have eternal redemption. The gospel is called eternal. His kingdom is called eternal. His covenant is called eternal. And then, of course, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal Everlasting life, John 3.16. So if those who say hell is temporary want to be taken seriously and want to to be consistent in their biblical interpretation, then they need to be ready to call all of these good things the Word is used for temporary as well. And they don't. And I praise God they don't because they'd be wrong. But at the same time, they're wrong and they need to realize that just as the Scriptures speak to eternal blessings as a result of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, they speak to eternal punishment. They speak to eternal cursings as a result of sins, trespasses, transgressions, disobedience, and unbelief in Christ. Those who don't know God or obey the gospel of Jesus will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The loss of everything that makes existence worthwhile. Leon Morris writes this. I think he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he he wrote this. Unbelievers pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Doesn't mean they go away. They will be away from the presence of the Lord. Not that they will be able to get away from Him. Because God is still omnipresent. But they will not be able to access any of the good and perfect gifts God gives. They will be separated from from the goodness of God. They will be fully exposed to the wrath of God. There will be no hint, not even a shadow of blessing in hell. Only the wrath of God. As Jesus says in Mark 9, the worm will not turn, the fire will never be quenched. It is unimaginable suffering physically, spiritually, for eternity. So, we, the church, the ones who will not go to hell, but have some understanding of the awfulness of it all, we can't take this lightly. And we cannot omit this from our gospel proclamation. Something my brother says often, you got to preach the bad news so that they understand the good news. You know, we want to tell people about Jesus' love. And they say, well, my family loves me. And I, and I, I feel love. People need to know what they're going to get and what they're missing out on to understand their need. So we cannot take hell lightly. And we mustn't take lightly the language we use in relation to hell. From a practical standpoint, you know, we often scoff at the casual way in which people on television or in real life tell others to go to hell. Last night I was putting the final touches on on this message and then there was a TV show on uh, in the background and I heard those words almost right after I typed this in my notes. Someone said, go to hell. And we must never, ever 
rejoice at the thought of anyone going to hell. The Lord Himself who sends people, who will send people to hell, and Ezekiel says He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We must never rejoice at the thought of anyone spending eternity there. Nevertheless, it's a reality. It's forever. And so we also, last thing here, we need to understand the ultimate purpose of hell. And for that, I'm going to be in Revelation 21. If you're still there, you can see this. Revelation 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they, will, they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Ultimately, What is the purpose of hell ultimately? It is the glory of God being manifested for eternity in salvation through judgment. God is holy, holy, holy. A fact stated and emphasized and re-emphasized from Genesis to Revelation. He is holy. He is just. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. He's all of those things that we understand when we talk about the doctrine of who God is. But what He cannot do and what He will not do if He is holy and just is look the other way when it comes to sin. We are sinners, but if we have believed upon Jesus, it means He has borne the penalty for our eternal destruction. And and do you ask... How could He bear the penalty for eternal destruction on the cross? Because He Himself is infinite. Because He Himself is holy. He Himself, Jesus, is perfect. He Himself, Jesus, was sinless and yet bore the sins for all time for all who will ever believe on that cross. The infinitely sinless and perfect Son of God took our deservedly infinite punishment from His infinitely holy Father in finite time and space so that we might drink from the spring of the water of life without cost. Thanks be to God this morning. But for those who remain in their disobedience, for those who continue to to not trust in Christ, for those who continue to reject Him flat out, and for those who continue to go through the motions 
of faith. For those who think, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, if God is holy and just, they cannot and will not be in His presence. They will receive the due penalty of their sins. I'm almost done. But if this were not the case, if, if hell were just a place where everybody was cleansed, God would not be just. God would not be most glorified. He would be letting people off for sins Jesus didn't pay for at the cross because they will have not believed in Him when given the chance in this life. But He is holy, and so hell is the repayment. The ultimate purpose of hell is the glory of God. So, how should we who trust in Christ respond to that? Well, for starters, we should not shrink back from this. Don't shrink back from telling people about hell. Jesus Himself preached about hell. We have to follow His lead and show people the way out, which is the gospel. Why do I need to believe in a guy who died on a cross and you say rose from the grave? Because the alternative is eternal destruction. The biblical teaching about the permanency and the awfulness of hell ought to to stir up in us and burst forth from us a missionary impulse by the grace of God to pry sinners from the encroaching shores of the lake of fire. And as time goes on, we see the tide getting higher. So that ought to make us more urgent. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. But if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Who are you warning? Who are you praying for? May the fire of our obedience be kindled to not just talk about how we should go and make disciples. Let us actually do it. But most of all, as we consider hell this morning, let us be driven to worship God and thank Him and fear Him And be humble before Him because we deserve hell. And by the grace of God, because of what Jesus has done, I'm not going there.